Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. By 1984, the San Francisco Giants were cloaked in misery and failure. They hadn't been back to the playoffs since 1971, and so they were a miserable team, miserable organization. The owner knew it, management knew it, the players knew it, and the fans certainly knew it. And yet they still had to try and sell tickets, and so the folks in the marketing department said, what are we going to do? And so they brainstormed. They came up with a unique idea for 1984. They decided, we're going to give the fans somewhere where they can focus this negative energy. We're going to create the anti-mascot. And so they created Crazy Crab. It actually worked for a little while. They dressed up an actor, put him in a crab suit, The fans played along, they booed, they threw popcorn, they threw drinks, but it didn't end there. Along the way in that year, it got progressively worse and worse. They had to reinforce the crab suit, they had to put a crash helmet on the guy who was wearing it because they progressed from throwing popcorn to throwing batteries and golf balls. He got tackled twice, he had to go to the hospital once. So by the end of all of this, they decided to pull the plug because the anti-mascot, they thought, could be a love-hate relationship. It only ended up being hate-hate both ways. When you look at the prophets, I think that's a great picture to have in your mind. The prophets of the Old Testament are the ancient anti-mascots. They, they go out on the field, they're among a people that are in not so great of a mood, and so what we find with Israel is in their seesawing back and forth in relationship with God, they're, they're coming back to God, they're moving away from God, they're always bent a little bit toward rebellion, and the prophets have to come, dress up in the suit, and have to proclaim some things they don't want to hear, and it's not an easy job. At uh, career day, it's not a booth that all the people go flocking to. Let me become a prophet. In Malachi's day, the people of Judah were in exile for most of the 6th century. When the Persians took power, they began to allow the Jewish people to return home. And so there were three major waves of returning. And, And what we find with Malachi is that he is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in that effort that that uh, the, the three of them, there was this effort to rebuild the city, but also, and more importantly, to rebuild Israel's relationship with God. The temple had been rebuilt and finished about 516 uh, BC, and so these physical and even spiritual reforms had been underway, but some time had passed from that initial excitement of that revival and that energy, and what has happened now is that hope has sort of denigrated into apathy and complacency. There are significant cultural problems in Malachi's day. Listen and hear if you have any of these ring a bell for you. There's major skepticism toward religion. 
People don't know if they really want to believe in that old religion anymore. People also are just angry. They're mired in disappointment. Everywhere they turn, life is just not turning out the way that they had hoped. There's also broad moral failure across the board. It's leading to a society of great injustices against those who are uh, on the outer outskirts of society. And also, there is a lack of trust in the institutions of the day. They do not trust the government. The government has failed them. Local government, but also the Persian government. They also do not trust the priestly leaders, their church. Both of these institutions at different points in Malachi's day are either inept or corrupt, and often both at the same time. Not only this, but there's this added pressure that the people are being crushed by wave after wave of financial issues. There is extreme poverty. It's leading to desperate measures for people. There's also has been a major famine in the land. There are high taxes. And listen to this, because of Persian economic policy, there is out of control inflation. You can read all about that in Nehemiah chapter 5. And so there's an open question, and the, the people are, are not happy. They're cloaked in misery, and they are looking up to the heavens, and they're wondering, will Israel, will Jerusalem ever rise again? Will God ever come and meet his people again in his glory? And will our time of suffering ever cease to end? Against the backdrop of all of those questions is an excruciating silence until Malachi's prophecy offers a bit of insight and explanation as to why there is silence. Malachi has a very difficult job. He's going to make the case that God seems distant. He is silent because the people have grown spiritually complacent. And, and that's never a message that anybody wants to hear. It's never a message anybody wants to deliver, but it's the truth. And Malachi is in the crab suit, and he's got to go out on the field and take the abuse of a message people don't want to hear. There are signs of spiritual complacency, even among the church-going folk, if you will. There's lackluster and lazy worship before God. People are offering their second and their third best, not their very best before God. There's also poor spiritual leadership, and the people are putting up with it. It's a reflection of the people themselves. Also, in their personal lives, they are pursuing after illicit relationships of those who are worshiping foreign gods. They're saying to God, we know what you say is right in relationships, but we don't care. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to love who we want to love. There's also broken marriage after broken marriage, and things are crumbling down around the family. On top of all of that, there's selfishness and material things. The prophet Malachi says, you are robbing from God. You see, after time, spiritual complacency does something to our hearts. It begins to distort our understanding of God, our, our understanding of others, even our understanding of ourselves. And soon, what happens in that complacency and that distortion of what it is that we see, what happens is we look around, we don't like what we see, 
and a debilitating resentment begins to sort of creep into our lives. And in the end, that always leads us to rebellion and turning our back on God. This is the spirit of the times that Malachi now finds himself placed in and having to do this difficult work. When you look at the book of Malachi, it's centered around six disputes between God and his people. And Malachi, of course, as the prophet of God, serves as the mouthpiece of God, echoing what it is that God is trying to say to the people. But he also serves a dual role in that he echoes the cries of the people, even in their distorted view of things. He is presenting their case as well in response. And so as we come to the end of chapter 2, things have been building toward a crescendo, and we come to the fourth dispute, and in it we find something very shocking. We find that the people are crying out, and they're crying out with a resentful accusation against God. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, the people are, are disappointed. They're, they're upset. They are angry. They are mired in this sense of failure. And so how do they respond? In their distorted view, they end up what? Pointing their finger at God. They, they are accusing God. They're so degraded spiritually that they don't know what else to do. Now listen, as believers today, we ought to know better. We, we do have an advantage. We have the full counsel of the Word of God. We, we know the story from beginning to the coming of Christ and the sacrifice on the cross and His death and His resurrection. We know the full weight and counsel of the Word of God. And we know what it says to us about what it is we see around us, whether we accept it or not is another thing. But, but as believers in Christ, we have a framework to deal with disappointment and to deal with a world that we know is not what it should be. What is that framework? This is the framework. What the Bible says is broken world, broken people, broken me. The Bible lays out the case. There's a reason why we see a broken world. There's a reason why we see broken people, and it, it really does begin when we look inward to see that, oh, I'm broken as well. And that's not just bad news for bad news' sake. That, that really is a perspective. It's an understanding that when I'm disappointed in life and when I'm frustrated and when I'm, I'm not happy with the th way things are and the way that the world is going, there's a reason why I see what it is that I see. And so there's a, there's a little secret to this framework that, that I want to highlight this morning because it really is something Malachi is trying to do for the people as they're pointing their finger at God. He's trying to get them to turn and to see uh, the, the understanding from God's point of view, right? Broken world, broken people, broken me. Here's the secret. I've got to begin, if I'm going to see rightly, I've got to begin by focusing on broken me. I've got to turn inward. I've got to look within. I've got to be willing to do that work. 
Because if I fail to start there, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to grow spiritually frustrated. That frustration with God and with, with life and my spiritual life, it's going to lead to complacency. Well, I guess it just doesn't work. I guess I go through the motions, but my heart's not in it. We become complacent. And here's what happens. My resentment will continue to grow, and I'll look outward toward the broken world and broken people, and that resentment will just keep growing and growing and growing. We all have that tendency. I don't know about you, but along the way, I've been able to get my PhD on a broken world. I can tell you all the reasons why I think the world is broken or why the government isn't doing what it ought to do, why there's so much injustice why people's relationships break down. I can, I can spout four days about what I think about the broken world and how to fix it. Or I'll look around, I get my PhD in broken people. Well, I understand what's going on in your life. Here's what you need to do. Here's why you're hurting me. Don't do that. Stop doing that. And we, we get that expertise in broken world and broken people. But the truth is, sometimes I barely have a GED in broken me. I'm so consumed by the brokenness around me that when it comes to looking inwardly, I don't really want to do that work. And, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm broken. I'm broken. But look at all of what the world's doing. Look at what people are doing. And look how it's affecting me. And it distorts our understanding of what God is really doing in and through the world. So this pattern of spiritual complacency and resentment, it finally traps us, and it leads us to only one possible conclusion. And it's found here in verse 17. The people fell into this trap. You, God, you, God, you're the one to blame. You're the one who's not coming through. Now, let me stop here for a moment because I do want to highlight that there are such a thing as legitimate questions, right? The longer that we live, the more that we experience, the more that we will recognize. There are legitimate questions, I don't know about you, but, but I have about God and about His ways and what He chooses to do and what, how He chooses to work or not work in the world. And I think one mistake that we can make as the people of God is to pretend that we don't have those questions or maybe even to lead people to believe that that it's wrong or it's a sin to even have questions of God. If you go back a couple of prophets to Habakkuk, what we find is that it is an entire series of questions that the prophet has for God and his toleration of wrongdoing in the world. And God responds each time with predictions of justice. Justice is coming. Well, sometimes that's hard to understand why justice isn't here now, right? So we all have questions for God. It's normal. I would even say it's spiritually healthy, and God can handle those questions. In the 1980s, an author by the name of Ralph Smith had looked into some research. He made an observation. He said, children ask roughly 125 questions a day, but by the time that we get to adulthood, that goes all the way down to six. So somewhere along the way, between childhood and adulthood, we lose 119 questions a day. And he was making the point that part of that is just a child is, is learning new things, right? And so they're eager. But he said that's, that's an innate excitement about life and about discovery of new things. 
And, and he made the point, the truth is, even as adults, and especially in a relationship with God, we ought to continue to have that excitement of discovery, and even in our frustrations, to cry out to God and to, and to ask God questions. God, I don't understand this. Help meet me in my question. God will. It doesn't mean that he gives us the answers in the moment. Have you lost that sense of excitement for discovery, even in your frustration, to keep asking questions of God? I think that's important. Now, there is a difference between sincerely asking God questions and accusing God of wrongdoing. See, the people here, their, their attitude toward God has grown in their complacency, it's grown in their resentment, and it's come to this arrogant and even perverse point, right? God must delight in evil. He, he not only allows it, he delights in it. If God delights in evil, then he is an unjust God. And you know what the prophet says to this? You've got to be kidding me, right? He says, this wearies God. It's an interesting word. It, 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 it's sort of, let, let me give you the modern, God is done, right? As my grandmother in Oklahoma would say when I was growing up, you've gotten on my last nerve, boy, right? This is it. It's a cosmic eye roll. You've got to be kidding me. Your perspective is so distorted. You're pointing the finger at me. But not only that, you're saying, I delight in evil. God is done. So you've heard the expression, when you point your finger at someone, right? There's three pointing back at you. That's absolutely true. In Malachi 3, in those first four verses, we see the forecast of the coming of John the Baptist, the messenger who will come and declare the way, make way for the coming Messiah. And then, of course, forecasting Jesus himself that he will come. But it's interesting as you read this forecast. Again, this is the, the last prophetic book in the Old Testament. There's Malachi, and then there's a couple hundred, a few hundred years, and then Jesus comes. And it's interesting, when you read these words, it's far from the warm, idyllic picture that we have of Christmas and baby Jesus in the manger and peace, goodwill have come to men. That's far from the picture we have here of the coming Messiah in Christ. No, it's, it's a hard thing to hear. God says, oh, you want to talk about justice? You want to point the finger at me? The Messiah is coming. I am sending my son, and he will expose your complacency, your sin, and your injustice. And verse 2 says that he will come, and who can stand? Where do we hear that language? It's not only here before he comes the first time, but also as we fast forward. And as, as New Testament believers, we are looking to the second coming of Christ. That is our hope, but also it is a terrifying hope because we're told that in the end that he will come again, that the clouds will open up. He will come as a judge and he will come to judge the world and who will be able to stand? No one. The scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
In verse 3, it says that he is a refiner's fire that's a violent, a terrifying, a fearful image that is being presented. And it reminds us that the good news of Jesus Christ is meant to be delivered. Yes, with an abundant mix of hope, and the prophets do that. We have it in the New Testament. It is our great and blessed hope. The New Testament says that he will come again, but it's a mix of that hope, but also of that appropriate fear. The refiner's fire comes for who first? Talks about the Levites. The refiner's fire comes first for the people of God. Do we see that not also in echoed in Revelation? That in the, the seven letters of the seven churches we see, yes, Jesus is coming again and he will be a refiner's fire. So God's judgment comes. We sometimes forget that. It comes for everyone, for the church first, for God's people, and then for the rest of the world. We don't like to talk much today about the fear of God, do we? I think it's one of the major blind spots of the modern evangelical church. We want to embrace the love of God, rightly so. His love and His grace and His forgiveness, they are wonderful. His mercies are new every morning. We ought to proclaim that to the top of our lungs. We do in many of our songs. But listen, the truth is also, not only is it the love of God as the people of God we proclaim, but we also ought to recognize and proclaim the fear of God. You see, that imbalance today can be so destructive. It can lead to all kinds of misunderstanding because even the Word of God says the fear of the Lord is what? It is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of understanding, of, of clarity. And so the love of God and the fear of God, they go hand in hand. And I've, I've learned this in my own walk with Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've learned about my own spiritual complacency and as I go through those periods, the, the one thing that I've learned is that often I can, I can be in church and I can sing about the love of God. I can talk about the love of God. I can read about the love of God. But that's not often the thing that helps me either avoid my complacency or get out of my complacency. It's often when I read about and when I think about the fear of God, the judgment of God. Look at King David. We don't have time to, to read a passage, but we could read all the ups and downs of his life. And what you see of David is that he had no problem. He had no problem relishing in the love of God. In fact, the word says that he was a man after God's own heart. He was an artist. He was a poet. He wrote poetry and he wrote music and he sang songs of love and devotion to God. And yet in his times of complacency and in those times that severely damaged his own life, the life of his family, the life of his kingdom. It was when he was confronted by the fear and judgment of God. When he was willing to lean into that, that's where he was able to course correct and he was able to write things like Psalm 51, be merciful to me, O God. Wash away my guilt. Create in me a pure heart again. You see, David had the spiritual maturity to realize that in the end, nobody wins playing the blame game. And that it takes the love of God and also the fear of God to see things rightly. And he was willing to look in his own heart. 
Joseph Stalin ruled over the Soviet Union for 30 years. In that time, it has been estimated that about 15 million people were sent to the Gulag, those forced labor camps. One of those prisoners was a rabbi, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who would survive his imprisonment and would go on to become one of the most influential rabbis, Jewish leaders in the 20th century. He would often tell of his experiences in that terrible time in Russia. One story that he liked to tell was about one of the favorite activities of those that were in prison. They loved to play cards, and so in his time there, he said someone was able to smuggle in a deck of cards, and they loved playing cards, but unfortunately, this was not allowed. And so the, the, the Russian guards caught wind of it, and whoever was going to get caught was going to be severely punished. And so they came and they would inspect the prisoners' quarters. But time and time again, and it happened several times, the, the prisoners would be playing cards and, and the rabbi said, I was there and I would watch them. And all of a sudden, there was chaos as the guards crashed into the quarters and they would search and they would throw everything around, but they could never find the deck of cards. And he was bewildered by all of this. And he just, he's like, I don't know how they're doing this. I don't know how these guys are hiding this deck of cards until finally he was led on in on the secret one day. One guy pulled him aside and he said, let me tell you our secret. There are several of us in here who are actually expert pickpocket people, right? We, we've had a bit of a criminal past. And so here's what we do. When the guards crash in, one of us grabs the deck of cards, and as they are furiously searching for the cards, we slip the deck of cards into one of the guards' pockets. They tear everything apart. They're angry. They're upset. They know that they're having fun. They know they're playing cards. They can't find anything. And just before the guards give up and slip out again, one of us goes over and we just gently and discreetly lift those cards again. And we go on playing our game. You see, the guards never thought to check their own pockets. Are you checking your pockets today? When things are off, when we feel like God is not coming through for us, when we feel like the world is just completely broken and we're so frustrated by the broken world and by broken people and maybe maybe we're getting incoming maybe people are hurting us and we look to God and we want to point the finger are we willing to take the time to examine ourselves and to look in our own pockets God makes it clear nobody nobody's going to win the blame game certainly not blaming him and he also makes it clear that the time for pointing fingers will end. And he gives a very clear answer to many, some of the questions we have in our society today. When will it ever stop? Will, when, uh, will injustice ever be overturned? Will the wrongs ever be made right? And what he says is, yes, absolutely, that the coming Messiah will make all things New. The refiner's fire is coming. Jesus came. He lived. He died on the cross. He rose again to usher in a new covenant. 
The kingdom of God is already here. We know that. We, uh, if we're in, in Jesus Christ, if you've got a relationship with the Lord, you should already have that perspective. You should already know, even with all the stuff we've got to deal with, that the kingdom of God is here and now, and His grace and His love is ever-present with us. It has been accomplished, but He also will come again. You see, the refiner's fire is not finished. He will return, and He will judge, the Scripture says, the living and the dead. And all those questions of evil and suffering and injustice in one moment in a flash Christ will bring all men, all men to account. So in Malachi 3, it starts with the house of God and the Levites, and that judgment expands broader out into the world. It says in verse 5, I'll draw near to you for judgment. I'll be swift against the sorcerers and adulterers, those who lie, those who oppress the worker and his wages, those who oppress widows and the fatherless, right? Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And what? Do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus is the answer to all the questions of injustice that we have. God has already written the story. He has already determined the end. But what do we do until then? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we must check our own hearts because we are so easily led into spiritual complacency, disillusionment, disappointment, frustration, anger, bitterness, apathy. Some of us may be stuck right there today. The question we must pursue is how do we find our way back? In Malachi, actually, the next question, the next dispute that he takes up in that next passage deals with that. He speaks in verse 7 of this question of, that he's echoing of the people. How shall we return, O Lord? And the interesting thing is it isn't a question of genuine inquiry. Lord, we know we're lost. How do we return? It's not that at all. The New Living Translation spells it out this way. How can we return when we've never really gone away? They're still pointing the finger at God. They're saying, we haven't moved. We haven't gone anywhere. We're still going to church. We're still making sacrifices. God, you're the one who has moved. Their spiritual complacency has been so gradual they don't realize how far they've wandered from God. In 1985, a woman by the name of Jody Roberts was living in Tacoma, Washington. She was working as a reporter for the Tacoma News Tribune, and in May of that year, she was reported missing when she didn't show up for an assignment. Her car was found in a nearby parking lot, but they could not locate her at all, and Jody's family started the search from that day that would go on for years and years. Along the way, of course, possibly assuming that she had been murdered, perhaps by a stranger, maybe, maybe because of her job as a reporter, she had created unknown enemies. They just didn't know. Twelve long years had passed before someone finally recognized from a picture, they recognized that Jody was alive. She was living 
in Sitka, Alaska. It turned out that a week after she disappeared, she was found wandering aimlessly in a shopping mall in Colorado. She was hospitalized and the doctors didn't have any idea who she was. She couldn't recall anything about who she was or about her past. She ended up leaving the hospital. She took the name Jane D. She actually went on to college. She earned a degree. She moved to Alaska. She married a fisherman. They started a website design company together. She became the mother of two sets of twin girls until 12 years later when she was discovered and Jody's family find out she is still alive. Of course, they were thrilled. They were excited. But when they were finally able to get to Alaska and to talk to their daughter, it was obvious she just had no memories of home. All those years. You see, Jody was never looking to go home because she had no idea that she had ever left. In our spiritual complacency, sometimes we get to that point. And so how do we ever return home if we don't ever realize that we've left? The ultimate tragedy of spiritual complacency is that we can find ourselves far from God without ever realizing. I hope that's not true of you or of me today. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.